Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back to the House of Mystery, and of course, I'm Al Warren. Now, today we have, uh, I guess we would call him a fantasy writer. Um, so, we'll, so let's find out what it's all about. Uh, Mr. Alex Schwartzman, thank you for being here. Thanks very much for having me. Alex, this is this is really fascinating to me um, because there are so many genres uh, out there, and I see you're put under paranormal, urban fantasy, literature, fiction. So it's kind of um, I always try to separate everything and figure it out. This is uh, maybe because I'm getting too old because I, I classify it all as science fiction, uh, which I know isn't right. So how do you classify? your writing i i classify it as speculative fiction because i feel like that covers everything right you got you know whether i'm writing about spaceships robots angels uh wizards uh, dragons it all counts as speculative so i really like that term uh now i really wouldn't classify myself as somebody who's writing like that subcategory i think that's just probably the amazon robots running amok and doing their own thing what I'm writing currently is best classified as humorous urban fantasy. Okay. So you, you have a lot of humor and uh, I know some your main character, like in the newest book here, you've got coming out, it's called the middling afflection and it's the uh, Conrad verse Chronicles book one. That's right. So the humor you put in it, it, it is that derived from you and kind of your own sort of, look at the world maybe uh in a, in a large way yes uh for me uh, i never imagined myself uh being somebody who writes humor never never pictured it when i was young and i kind of they they dreamt about writing science fiction and getting a book published someday 
I always imagined myself tackling these serious issues and like writing, you know, grown up stuff that's, uh, you know, that, that, that's all taken without any grain of salt whatsoever. Um, and then one day, uh, as I started actually working to break into uh, to this writing industry, uh, shall we say, um, one day I felt particularly contrarian and I just started writing a funny story. And they say that it's much more difficult to write humor, which is probably true for most people. I found it liberating. I found that I was just having fun with it. Uh, I was coming up with stuff off the cuff. Uh, the, the, the story flowed. Uh, the energy of it was just much more, you know, much more interesting and fun for me to do. Uh, so I think I kind of found my calling, uh, which is not to say that I don't write more serious science fiction and, and, and other speculative stuff as well. But humor really holds a, a special place in my heart. And I tend to, um, I can't do stand-up comedy because I'm not just that quick on my feet. But if you give me time to actually think it through and, and do a couple of revisions, I can come up with some fairly funny stuff. And so uh, a lot of authors struggle with that. So I kind of take that as, uh, as, my, as my advantage. And I certainly press it by by writing both humorous novels and humorous short stories. Well, there's probably a certain amount of honesty that comes out in the humor, right? I mean, when and when you're when you're kind of um, like when you got a character that's maybe sarcastic or a little bit um, humorous in that way, it's really kind of a way of, of of being honest, don't you think? Absolutely. There's a saying that I'm very fond of, and it goes something like. In every joke, there's a little bit of a joke because the rest of it is true. Yeah. <laughs> but do you find you have to be a little bit careful on, um, let's say, the timing of such humor? You always take a risk when you're writing a humorous story. And it's not so much that um, that I think I'm going to offend somebody or, you know, because I'm not writing sort of the stuff that's going to poke the bear and get, you know, get people, you know, in, in, get, get into like really controversial topics or anything like that. The danger that you're really facing is that the joke is not going to land. And if the joke falls flat, then the entire story might collapse for, for the reader. So the trick to that, in my opinion, is to try and write the story in a way that if every single joke fails, if the person just doesn't find you funny at all, there's still enough plot and enough character development and enough momentum to carry the story forward as something that's, you know, light, but may not, not necessarily humorous in the eyes of that particular reader. And if you can find that balancing act, that tightrope, uh, then you can consistently come up with stuff that's going to be eminently readable because you're not completely relying just on the jokes. Now, I noticed the um, location is uh, New York City. And um, w when I see that, you know... Um, you know, supernatural and you're, and you're kind of getting into the speculative part of things. Um, so in a way you write New York city, how you want it to be in your book. And isn't that kind of, um, you know, you're writing it like a character in a way. I absolutely do write it as a character, though I will argue against the fact that I write it the way I want it to be, because boy, do I, you know, usually you know, good authors torture their characters. And New York City is definitely a character in my books. So it gets in, it, it gets into some really tough times uh, through, and I'm not going to spoil specific details, but uh, 
all sorts of unpleasant things happen to the city and its citizens, and it's up to the characters to to prevent such things. So I don't know that I, that I'm going to go as far as to say that uh, you know that I want I write New York the way that I want to see it. It's more that I write New York uh, as someone who has lived here for the past 30 years and really loves the city and kind of wants to present the story from the point of view of another of a character who likewise really loves their city and is willing to uh, go to great lengths and even risk their life to protect it. Now, I noticed in the title, like the whole title is interesting from an outsider looking in, and also how you say Conrad verse. So one of your characters is Conrad Brent. So I'm taking it that it's really, you know, the world around Conrad. Um, maybe explain the title and, and what Conrad verse is. Sure. So Conrad Brent is, uh, he is, he works for an organization called The Watch, which is a volunteer organization in New York City. And it protects regular people from monsters and magical threats. So he is sort of an arcane cop, though he always hates that description and kind of, you know, bristles against it. Um, and the story is told in first person. So you really get into his voice, which is very snarky and sarcastic and humorous in a way that I like to write humor with lots of pop culture references and, and just sort of, he always has a running commentary going on on, on, on everything that's around him. Uh, now, while he is, he holds this very important post as somebody who is the, the main guardian of Brooklyn against the supernatural, he has a dark secret as well. He doesn't actually have magic. He's something called a middling. He can perceive magic and he can use magical artifacts, but he can't generate magic on his own. So in the story, he describes himself as Batman because he is this guy who has no superpowers and is forced to rely on gadgets in a world filled with superheroes and supervillains. Now, being a middling, the reason why I say that's a dark secret is um, middlings in the society are despised and hated by most people, even some of the other good guys. And Conrad is very carefully guarding his secret because he doesn't want anyone to find out. There, things will turn really, really unpleasant for him if they do. Uh, there are many societies and religions and cults within this uh, magical version of New York and the world, uh, the, the, the Conrad versus I call it, uh, who are instructed to kill middlings on sight. So it would be really dangerous for him if this information got out. And so what he has to deal with is he has to continue to do his job and essentially be better at, at dealing with magical threats than anybody with actual magic. So there's an added level of la layer of challenge for him. So in the, in the magical city of New York and um, the magical threats and monsters you talk about, are they standard fare? And I don't mean that as a negative, but I mean, um, when you create and have monsters and different magical attacks happening in this Conrad verse, is it traditional? Is it stuff that you, other people are aware of from other books and movies and things like that? Or do you create your own sort of magical beings? Uh, most of the characters that I deal with are traditional magical beings that you would be familiar with from, from other tropes. But I always take great care to put my own spin on them. So I really like subverting the tropes. So I do have vampires, but they don't act or 
behave the way that vampires do in most, uh, you know, in, in, in most fantasy stories. Uh, I do have trolls and, and, and other magical creatures, and, and they all um, have their own sort of motivations and, and feelings and things. And, they, you know, they're, they're not your typical um, Dungeons and Dragons uh, fair. Now, the, the, what, what makes the world of the Conrad verse a little bit different is the way that I set it up. Uh, the explanation that Conrad gives is that in the society, about one in every 30,000 people is born with a gene that allows them to perceive and cast magic. Everybody else is completely unaware of its existence. So we're talking about more uh, secret, you know, secret history level stuff, kind of like the movie Highlander, where they're aware of each other and some other people are aware of them, but the society at large isn't. Uh, so Conrad is a, one of those people who is aware of what's actually going on, but an average person, their brain kind of edits the reality for them. So if a troll walks by you and you yourself don't have that gene, you're going to perceive that troll as maybe like a really large biker or something. So your brain will kind of see somebody throwing a fireball and, uh, and, and you'll think that they're using a flamethrower. So, so an average person, unless they are specifically read in on the supernatural and 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 on all the secret stuff that goes on in the city, uh, they simply go on about their lives and they don't know any better. Wow. Um, so, so your characters that you've got in here, um, how do you experience them? Are you seeing them, you know, visually, or do you hear their voices, or how, what's your experience in characters? I see a movie in my head. And so the scenes, I, you know, I, I don't know that I necessarily describe every scene in a very cinematic way, but the way that it starts out in my brain and from that goes onto the page, I, I definitely see a movie playing. And that's why I think the dialogue is a little bit more sort of like snappy TV show dialogue rather than, um, you know, rather than something else. Actually, a couple of people have described it as comic book dialogue which is not bad. I'm not actually a big comic book reader, but uh, I certainly will accept that as, a, uh, as, as an appropriate description of, uh, of what's going on. But it's always like fast moving and, uh, and snappy. And, you know, that's sort of what I'm shooting for. And I kind of hear in my head uh, their banter, you know, and, and like how they would talk to each other and, and, and what everything looks like. Hmm. So when, when things are happening in story, um, and you're creating this book in, in this new magical world. Do you have an underlying theme or perhaps a subtext or something that you're trying to get across as a point? Um, is there something more than the entertainment value? Absolutely. There's always a third rail. Uh, that's what I refer to, the, to to such things that are kind. That's kind of it's underneath under the scenes. I don't beat you over the head with it, but there is that underlying serious theme uh, to the story and in this particular story the theme is institutionalized prejudice so conrad is dealing with this his entire life where he is you know he's not at fault for being born the way that he was and he doesn't understand how that happened he doesn't know what it means why middlings even exists he's never met another another one because they're so rare uh so he's kind of he exists in this vacuum and he has to deal with a society where, as I said, even the good guys may necessarily turn, you know, may turn on him on a dime if uh, if they find out 
what he is. And he's not the only character in the story that's dealing in one way or another with, with institutionalized pre prejudice. There are other characters who have their own arcs that are dealing with it in their own ways. And again, I'm not lecturing and I'm not beating the reader over the head with it. This is something that's in the background, but it is certainly felt. And there are uh, similar themes like that for the sequels. I've uh, um, The Conradverse is, uh, uh, was always imagined to be a trilogy. So I have, I have a plan for the first three books. Beyond that, we shall see how popular it is and how well it does. But, but there is a story that I'm telling through the three books. And the second book is about the role of government and how no organization or power should have too much power, uh, no matter how well-meaning they happen to be and why. So there's that, you know, so and the third book, I don't want to even really get into yet because that's still in the, in, 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 in the construction stage. The second book is largely written. So, uh, you know, so I can talk about it a little bit. So do you kind of outline each of the books? Like you've got, you know, you said a trilogy, so you're looking at three books uh, so far. And when, when you picture that in your mind, when you have it set, is there a basic outline or do you have it really structured well and then you fill in the details or is it just kind of a, an idea and you run with it? There is the slimmest and the most flimsy of outlines. And the reason I say this is I know what the major story arc is. I know what the story begin, begins with. I know what and who the villain is that sort of like is the overarching villain of the three books, even though each book is structured to be so that you could read it as an individual story. So you're not kind of stuck with, a, um, you know, you're not stuck with, hey, here's half a book, wait a year, and I'll give you the other half. I, I hate when, when authors do that to me, and I don't want to be the author that does it to my readers. So each of them is a standalone story, but there is an overarching plot. So think of it as a TV show where you have every episode kind of deals with the problem. The, the, the main characters have a problem that they need to resolve, but there's also this slow-moving greater plot that kind of advances from the beginning to the end. Yeah, I think it's yeah, it's it's good that they stand alone, but it's 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 important to get each book of the story um, read because there's going to be development or things that happen to characters that you're not going to know about if you don't. Right, and and so to to I kind of walked away a little bit from your original question. Um, so what I end up doing is. I know where I, for, for every book, and in fact, for every short story that I write, before I sit down and I type the first sentence, I have to know how the story begins, what the, you know, what the problem is that the characters are going to be dealing with, and I have to know how it ends. A lot of the stuff in the middle, I kind of come up with as I'm writing. So a lot of the cooler world building stuff and better jokes are things that just occurred to me as I was writing that particular scene, that particular chapter. But I do have a guiding light where I know that every chapter that I write, every scene that I write needs to in some way progress the overall story toward the ending that I've envisioned. And I have that for each individual book and I, and I have that for the trilogy as well. So I know what the resolution is going to be. Uh, and I kind of need to make sure that while I'm telling individual stories in each book, uh, those stories do not mess with the, uh, with what I've envisioned for the ending in a way that's going to break it. Now, a lot of um, fiction writers that, that we speak to on the show will describe their characters in a sense of like a, um, a position, like they'll say, it's like my kids, it's like friends, it's like family. 
and they um, say that a lot of times their characters um, sometimes go off the rails and, and do things that you don't want them to do or you, they, you know they don't want to listen to your story and I hear all these different descriptions do you relate to that or do you have the same sort of uh, things happening with you and your characters oh absolutely so for one this entire thing started out as a couple of short stories and my plan was to write more short stories in this universe but the main character being a, a, a pushy uh, grifter that he is has conned me into turning it into a trilogy. Likewise, there's a character who starts out as a minor villain in book one, but she's so fun to write that she just becomes a major, major character throughout the series. And, and I didn't intend it that way. She just was meant to be there for like a couple of chapters. And then she just sort of talked her way back into the story and she appears throughout much of book one. And she becomes an even more important character in book two. So, so I definitely have that happen to me where the, the, the characters just kind of take, you know, they, 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 they take the stage and they're like, I'm the important one. How, how do you deal with something like that? Like, what do you, when characters are, let's say, fighting you on what you are trying to do in a story, how does that work out? Well, I usually let them win because if, if I've established enough depth to the character where the character kind of wants to do their own thing and everything that I know about the character is telling me that, hey, they need to go in this direction, even though I initially meant to do something different. I tend to go with that because you want in internal consistency. You want the story to feel, you know, you want the way that the characters act and, and what they're doing to feel natural to that character and not just feel like it's a the author is, with a bunch of marionettes that he's moving around the stage. So, and this is where it, it makes my life easier that I only outline the, the bare bone basics of, of, of the major plot points that I need to hit because usually these changes, these unanticipated changes, they may move the story in a slightly different direction, but there is enough stretch to it where it doesn't completely mess with my overall plan. Now, I noticed you it, it, in your bio, you, you've written quite a few short stories, like 120 or, or something. It says. Do you sort of like the idea of short stories better than a full book? Well, there's a couple of things that go into that. Um, I do really enjoy reading short stories. I grew up uh, and my first exposure to science fiction wasn't actually novels. It was short story collections. And it was mostly um, American and British short stories that I read in translation. Uh, that were originally written in like the 1950s to 1970s. So I read a lot of like Shackley and Asimov and Frederick Brown, which is going back a little bit further. And sort of like that era of short stories are always these relatively short things, but the, you have clever characters coming up with unexpected solutions to a difficult problem. And so that's where I kind of learned how to structure a science fiction story. Now, uh, for, you know, fast forward many, many years and half a, half a world away because I, I grew up in the former Soviet Union. And for a very long time, I didn't even attempt writing because I didn't think that my English would ever be good enough to be published professionally. So when I finally decided that I'm going to give it a shot um, and I started writing, I was like, well, hey, wait a minute. How do I know if what I'm writing is any good at all? 
is you're not a bad, you know, no, none of us are, are the best judge of our own writing. And so I came up with this quote unquote brilliant plan since I didn't know any other writers. I didn't know, I didn't have any critique partners. I didn't have anybody in my support network that could really help me. Uh, so I decided, hey, let me write a few short stories, send them out to magazines. And once those stories get to the point where they start selling, that's when I know that my writing is good enough and I can actually go and write a novel. So I started writing and sending out short stories and eventually one sold and then another sold and another. And it became like popcorn. It's really difficult to stop. I became addicted to tracking these submissions in a, in a spreadsheet and checking my email all the time to see if I got it. And, and every time you get an acceptance letter, that's like this really nice, you know, boost, uh, you know, to your, to your ego. And so I kept writing short stories and never, you know, it took me a fairly long time before I even started working on my first novel. So, so I built up, it's, it's more than 120 by now, but I honestly, I just stopped keeping track very, very carefully of it because there were so many not counting reprints and podcasts and, you know, and translations and, and everything else. So I, and now I still write an occasional short story here and there. But I definitely have made a conscious effort to move into novels, uh, which is not, I wouldn't say it's more difficult, but it's more rewarding. Most people tend to, the, the, most of the writers who are well recognized tend to be novelists, uh, even if they do write excellent short stories. Uh, not that many people outside of like hardcore hobbyists have read George R. R. Martin's short stories necessarily, but they all know Game of Thrones and, and, the, and the subsequent books. And so it's much more rewarding if you happen to do well to write novels. And ultimately, both are very enjoyable, but boy, is a lot more work to do a novel because that, that could take months, not years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in the novels, you tend to flush out the characters a whole lot more, like people learn more about them. They do. And you have to take a completely different, drastic approach to novels. I mean, my, my prose, because I did short stories for so long, my prose tends to be tends to be really terse and really laconic because you need that. Like if you're, if you're trying to squeeze an entire story into like 4,000 words, uh, you have to find shortcuts. You have to find a way to make a fewer number of words uh, perform the same job where the other person would write that many, that many paragraphs. Uh, and so now that I've been doing novels for a few years, I st I'm starting to, kind of relax a little bit and I'll allow myself to become slightly more verbose, which is definitely noticeable when I have to go back and write a short story for an anthology or something. I have to then remember that, hey, I'm writing a short story. I don't have all that space to spare. So I need to go back to that really, really tight prose of, you know, without giving myself an opportunity to like, you know, come up with some fun asides or, you know, or, 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 or really over describe something. So it's a definitely a different skill set. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. Um, now, of course, um, a lot of authors put a lot of themselves, like their own feelings and lives, and they say that you are part of a lot of the characters and, and a lot of the story. What do you think in your personal life comes out in your in your stories? Well, there's a lot. I, I, I don't think a, an author can separate themselves from their characters, but it's also very dangerous to assume that anything that comes out of the character's mouth is a philosophy that the author subscribes to. 
because you have to have a lot of characters with conflicting views. That's that tension is where the narrative momentum comes from. And so you have to be willing and able to adopt, you know, these views that may be opposite to your own and, and, and be able to have the characters argue where it's not a strawman argument, where both sides feel like they're, uh, like, like they truly believe what they're saying, right? And so, um, and, and so you have to kind of learn to be a lot more adept at being able to argue the other side. It kind of actually makes me think of a debate team. So if you, if you go in high school or, 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 junior, or junior high, if you go to a debate team, that's a skill that they teach you. And I had to pick that up on my own because, you know, I don't agree with everything that my characters are saying, but every one of them certainly has some of my DNA. And any author that tells you otherwise is, is not necessarily lying, but they're probably not quite understanding themselves as well as they should. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, now, so I noticed that you've written uh, for like UFO publishing and you're sort of have a lot of um, paranormal sort of aspects. Uh, is this come from personal experience? Do you have sort of a, a belief or a, a, do you follow the um, paranormal side or UFO side that goes on? Not even a little bit. So first of all, UFO publishing is my own imprint and it was created to publish a series of anthologies called Unidentified Funny Objects. So the word UFO in that sense has nothing to do with the actual UFO sightings or people who are believe that they've seen an alien or hunting ghosts or anything like that. Now, because of the name of the imprint for UFO publishing, I do get a lot of emails and a lot of manuscript submissions along those lines, which I promptly delete. Uh, I don't subscribe to any of that at all. Uh, I do believe there's intelligent life out there in the universe. I think it's very hard to be a science fiction writer and discount that possibility. But I don't think that there are little green men that are flying around and uh, you know, abducting cattle or whatever video game trope uh, uh, people, people <laughs> tend to subscribe to. Uh, so yeah, a UFO has to do specifically with unidentified funny objects, which is a series of anthologies that's uh, been around for a little over 10 years. There are eight volumes in it, and we're actually working on, on the next volume now. UFO 9 is going to come out by the end of this year. And I've had everyone from Neil Gaiman to Esther Friesner to Alan Jean Foster to uh, Esther Friesner um, appear in his books. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting area. A lot of people sure believe or really get into it, you know. Um, yeah. And now you 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 also um, do a lot of translation, I've noticed. And, and maybe maybe tell the listeners a little bit about your translation work. So, as I mentioned earlier, I grew up in the Soviet Union. Um, I was born in Ukraine, and my native language is Russian. So I speak, uh, so English is actually my third language. Uh, when I came over here, it took me a long time to get to the point where I mean, I still speak with an accent. I'm sure you can hear it, and so can your listeners. But, uh, but I picked up enough vocabulary, enough skills to be able to, to actually write in English. But I still continue to read in multiple languages. And there's a lot of really great science fiction that's been written in Russian that is, has never been translated. Uh, only a very small tip of the iceberg has become available uh, in English or in other languages. And the very first short story that I translated was on a whim. I really, my, my, my entire motivation 
was to geek out about a really cool story with my English-speaking friends that wouldn't have otherwise been able to read it. So when I did that, I found that um, it's a complementary but a very different skill to writing. And you do need your own writing chops in order to make the, the final version of the translation flow and, and, and read nicely for when you're translating fiction. But it's actually a lot more akin to doing a jigsaw puzzle or, or Sudoku. You kind of zone out and you are solving this really difficult puzzle because you're looking at a statement in one language and you are have to be conscious of its subtext and you have to kind of really think about, well, how do I relay that to a reader in a different language with a completely different set of backgrounds and experiences? So for example, if, uh, if somebody writes, uh, you know, and then he ran down the road like a roadrunner, what does that really mean to a person in a different culture that's never seen roadrunner cartoons, right? You can't translate that directly. Uh, you know, that will be completely meaningless to them and somewhat misleading. So you have to figure out a way how to phrase that in the target language where while you are betraying the exact text of the story, you are uh, presenting the reader with the same idea. And that's where and that's where the real fun part comes from, is that you you're translating the ideas rather than translating the text word by word. So it becomes a lot more of an art skill rather than a technical skill. So to, the, to date, I've, uh, I have translated novels, movie scripts, uh, video game materials, um, TV shows, and all sorts of short stories. And uh, most relevant to, uh, to, the, to the fans of speculative fictions would be the short story work because a lot of that is readily available online. So there's magazines that have the materials uh, posted and you don't have to buy anything. You can just go and read them. You can uh, check out uh, on my own website, there is a bibliography page and it has a whole bunch of links to, to the translated stories. So if you're curious about reading um, works written in Russian, and that doesn't just mean that there are works from Russia, there are works from Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, um, and, you know, all, all the republics where Russian was the, 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 the main language, um, you know, at least for, for a while though things are changing now. Uh, so those works are readily available. And uh, it, there's a lot of, like I said, that when I started this tirade, I said that there's a lot of really, really great works out there that haven't been translated. And I'm just I'm doing a tiny, tiny bit to fix that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing um, amount of work because you're right. There's, there's a lot of uh, detail that you can miss with simple translation, just, just translating the words. I know I did some project from uh the 1920s in germany and everything was all the papers everything was in german so i needed help with not only the translation but the explanation of what some of the meaning behind the sayings were absolutely and that's part of the good translation is to investigate those things and to be well enough immersed in the language that you can understand where the, where the author is coming from and what they're trying to say. Uh, a lot of the translations that I've encountered, they're performed by people who learned the language, who, who, who didn't grow up immersed in it. Um, they tend to make some very reasonable mistakes. And by the way, I'm not free of this sin either. 
I've caught my own mistakes in translations down the line because it was dealing with something highly specialized or it was dealing with something that is, um, you know, out of date and I didn't recognize it. Uh, you know, so, so these all translations are, are, are not infallible, but as a translator, your job is to just try and come up with the best possible uh, version of the text in the target language that will make it easy for the reader to, you know, to, to comprehend it and not to stumble over the um, stilted language that is often associated with translation because the people involved are sometimes they're very, very good translators in terms of the knowledge of the source language, but they're not themselves writers. And that makes it so much more difficult for them to come up with a final text that is uh, refined and that feels natural to the reader. What is your writing process? Like, how do you sit down and um, get into writing a book? And I mean this in a sense, do you have to have a certain surrounding? Do you have to have certain things around you, um, a certain place? And, and um, it, do you have to be in a certain mood? Or can you actually just time out and say, well, there's no one around from 10 to 2 today, so I'm going to sit down and write. And can you actually do it? Uh, so, yeah, being in the right mood helps. But anybody who is writing at any professional level has to find a way around that because you're not always going to be in the right mood. You're not always going to be uh, in the right place. So you need to kind of learn the skill of just getting in front of the keyboard and putting in the work. One of the ways that I solve that problem is to have multiple projects going at the same time. So if I'm in a really sour mood and I'm not up for writing light, funny, fluffy uh, fiction, then maybe I have a dark story that I'm working on at the same time, like a short story, uh, or maybe I have a blog post that I need to write or, or, or an interview, or maybe I can uh, translate a couple of pages. So it's as I'm definitely able to get to sit down in front of the keyboard and start working, but it may not necessarily be just the one project. Having said that, my preference is to hide away from the world. Uh, I have a little home office that's a tiny, tiny cubby on top of my garage where I can barely turn around, but it's all mine. And it has two doors between it and the rest of the house. So I get a peace and quiet. I, I'm not playing music while I'm writing. I'm not uh, getting any, any distractions. Uh, ideally, just peace and quiet. Um, I've tried writing at Starbucks once. And it was, I didn't have a choice. I had like an hour plus to kill and that was really the only yeah. place. So it was either just waste that time or write in Starbucks. And I, I don't know how people do it, honestly. Like, uh, and same thing on an airplane. I can't write on an airplane because I have this weird fixation that the person sitting next to me is going to read over my shoulder. And while I'm <laughs> ludicrously happy for people to read my stuff, I want it to be finished and polished first. Yeah. Well, yeah, you might be sitting beside a killer too, right? Yeah, but you know, like after they read my stuff, they just scared to kill me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, is there a particular one book that if no one had heard, if someone comes along, they've never heard of you before, and um, they say, "Well, what book would would kind of give me an idea of what kind of writer you are?" Which would you select? So, of the stuff that's already out. Uh, which is predates this upcoming book that's going to be out in just a few days. I would right. say it's my first short story collection. It's called uh, Explaining Cthulhu to Grandma and Other Stories. 
and it collects most of my early short story work, including the two short stories that inspired the Conradverse, as well as the title story, which, uh, which is an award-winning story that's been translated into a whole bunch of languages and reprinted many, many times over, which is probably my most successful and best-known work. I think that the reason I say it's that particular book and not my first novel or my novella uh, is because there's so much range in there. Uh, there's stories that are humorous. There's stories that are very dark. Uh, there's stories that are have that, you know, like the, the Shackley-esque clever uh, character solving a problem angle. Um, and they're all there in one book. And I'm very proud of, of, of that work. And the sort of, you can see as you read it, you can see what shaped me as an author. Now, having said that, as I do realize that most people prefer novels to short stories. It's just a fact of life. Novels are more successful, more people read them. So if you are going to pick up a novel of mine, I have to say the middling affliction is the way to go because it's really my voice. I mean, it's that snarky, funny, sarcastic first person narration that um, I could just, I've been writing the Conrad voice for so long now, I can just slide into it. I can talk like Conrad um, other than the accent, of course. So that's probably the, the most representative of, 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 of the current work that I'm doing. So when you hear Conrad's voice, does he tell you to do weird things? No, no. He, other than, he tells me to write more stuff about him, but I wouldn't say that's weird. I think that's just self-preservation. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you don't wake up in any location that you don't know how you got there or anything like and that. And if I did, no, I would not tell you on national radio. <laughs> Uh, well, we've got to get a little bit some, <laughs> some, you know, some some sort of surprise. Um, so, where do you see yourself going next after this book is out? This book is out uh, on the thirty first of May, I believe. So, what happens after the uh, the book is done? Uh, well, I'm almost done writing the sequel, and then it's going to be on to book three. I I really want to make sure that the trilogy is complete, and even if it's uh, going to uh, probably be published a year apart, so you're not going to get the entire trilogy until 2024, um, because that's just how traditional publishing works. Uh, I'm perfectly okay with just having it you know, in my drawer be done so that I can get the entire thing on paper, and then I'll feel much more comfortable moving on to the next project. And I do have a lot of other ideas that are that range from you know, Shakespearean space opera to dark post-apocalyptic urban fantasy. So, so there's all sorts of different things. They're not all going to be humorous. I, um, I tend to really enjoy exploring things that I haven't already done before. So once I, once I get the voice down, once I get the stories out, you know, the whole Converse series written, I am going to want to try something else, even if ultimately I come back to writing more humor, because that's been my fork for, you know, for a long time now. Um, but, but that's, but, but, but being able to go out and try these things and maybe some of them are just going to be novellas and not, uh, and not novels, just so I can kind of do a palate cleanser in between books. Um, that's, that, that's the next frontier, you know, that, that's definitely, uh, you know, it's going to keep me busy for just the ideas that I have written down and the plots, the general sort of like this, the, 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 the general outlines, the sketches that I have out right now could keep me busy in writing for the next decade. 
How long does it take you to complete one of these novels, like in, in this series? I am an incredibly slow writer. Uh, my first novel took me about four years to complete. Uh, the first hundred verse novel took me about two years. And the second one took about a year. So I am getting better at it. I'm getting a little faster, but certainly not um, at the pace of the, the writers that I like and admire, uh, you know, who are able to just dedicate the time to writing a book. And three months later, they have a, a book that's probably better than anything I've written. So I'm not there yet. I hope that one day I'll, you know, I'll, I'm come up from a baby writer and, and join their ranks where I can do that. Uh, but for now, I'm pretty slow. I would say that it's a bulk of a year for me to write a book that's not even necessarily very thick. But I do, in the meantime, also, you know, while working a day job, I will also translate a whole bunch of stuff and write some short stories and, you know, edit anthologies and, you know, do all sorts of other creative work. I like to explain it as me collecting different hats and wearing all these different hats as editor and publisher and writer and translator. And so I never get tired of, of trying on new hats. So even as my writing may be somewhat slow, uh, my creative output is not. How do you know when uh, the book is ready? You know, because I, in my experience with writing and other writers, I would say that you can always go back to it and kind of go, well, I like to do this or I need to change this. Or, you know, every time you, you look back at something you've done, you want to change it. So when do you say enough's enough? I don't remember who said it, but there is a quote that says the novels are never finished. They just escape. And I definitely subscribe to that theory. If you, you know, if I didn't sell the book, if I didn't have a publisher that was just ready to put it out already, I probably keep going back and just massaging it and changing a word here and a sentence there and throwing in an extra joke. And that process would never be over. So I'm very thankful for deadlines. Deadlines is what gets me to produce stuff because at the end of the day, if, if there's very little time left, I'll be crying while I'm banging on the keyboard, but stuff will get done. And ultimately at some point it gives me the excuse, the legitimate excuse that I need to, to let go of the book. Do you ever look back at some of your older work and kind of want to change something? A little bit, but not too, not too badly. I've, I've actually had the opportunity to do that because when you have a bunch of short stories and you're putting them together into collection, you can actually make some changes. There's nothing out there that says, hey, it was published this way and therefore it must stay this way forevermore. Uh, you can actually make some small, and I'm, I'm not going to misrepresent it to my readers and go, hey, this is the story A, and then completely rewrite it to become story B. But I can certainly, you know, if I see something that uh, I could do better today than I could when I wrote the story 10 years ago, I can definitely massage that language a little bit. Um, I find, though, that the, usually it's very minor technical stuff. I'm quite happy with the plotting and the pacing that I've done from, from, from the beginning. Like I'm, I'm actually not embarrassed of my early work at all. Um, it's just a minor sort of like you, you, you acquire better writing tools in your tool belt. And so I could probably just write slightly more polished and smoothly today than I could when I started out. Uh, but at the same time, as I said, when you asked me the question about what represents my work best, it's, a collection of stories that include stuff that was written at the beginning of my career. Hmm. Um, 
how do you like the uh, new world with social media and uh, and uh, the way people can have almost immediate access to you, whether they're positive readers that like you or fans or ones that maybe dislike what you do? Um, do you find that you interact a lot with people or do you stay away from it? I interact with people a little too much. I definitely admit <laughs> to wasting way too much time on Facebook. And I have to say uh, my experiences have been largely very positive because I don't get, I don't tend to get into arguments with people. I tend to, you know, share joy over their successes, you know, and like their, their published work and, you know, the milestones in their lives. And I tend to share, you know, funny memes and observations and things like that. And so my social media experience has been by and large more positive than average, I would say. Um, I think we all make our own experiences. If you if you come to Twitter or any other social media platform and you're ready to brawl and you're out there to engage people who disagree with you, you will find that fight and you'll find it very, very quickly. Um, I don't tend to seek them out. I mean, I have my opinions, but I tend to get along with people um, and often get along with people that dislike each other because of whatever arguments that they're having at the time. So I, I just like to keep it that way. I've had very few negative interactions online for now. And who knows how that will change. I'm sure somebody somewhere will uh, find issue with my work and, and, and call me names and everything. But I'll just move on. There's plenty of good people that I can enjoy, yeah. enjoy socializing <laughs> with other, other than that person. Well, you just turn them into a character and make them suffer. Never, never. Being turned into a character <laughs> is an honor, and it is reserved for my friends and not my enemies. Even if those oh, characters die horribly. Yeah, that's interesting. Wow. Um, so uh, how do people get a hold of you? Do you have a website, and what social media do you like them to find you on? Uh, so my website is oliveschwartzman.com. It's just straight up, just like my name. Uh and you can find me on either Twitter or, or Facebook. All my Facebook posts are generally public, so people can follow me on there. Not all of them are about writing, but, you know, I, I tend to just share fun stuff uh, through there. And I'm a little bit less active on Twitter, but you can find me on Twitter as A. Schwartzman. Uh, so, again, first letter of my first name, followed by my last name. And I'll, um, I always post anything that's relevant. So if, the new, if a new short story comes out, I'll... I'll put it up on my blog. I'll put it up on Twitter. I'll put it up on, on Facebook. But that's the extent of my social media. I haven't joined TikTok or, or, or Instagram or YouTube. I, you know, I, I just can't. I know that if I start using all those platforms, I'll enjoy it, just like I'm enjoying the ones I'm using now. And then there will be no time to do anything productive. Yeah, you'll be on TikTok dancing around with <laughs> books and um We'll put all that up on our website as well. People can find you with one click, and that'll be uh, easy for them. Um, how, did, did COVID affect your writing in the sense of stress and anxiety? And does that kind of like when weird things are going on outside of the world around you and there's a lot of tension, uh, do you think that gets into your writing somehow or does it, does it shut you down on writing? Um, it allowed me more free time to write. I, and I know it sounds terrible, and I would much rather be busy and have COVID not happen, obviously. Uh, but on a personal level, it increased my productivity, if anything, because I was stuck at home. Uh, I picked up a lot more translation work because it's a work that I was able to do from home without interacting with other human beings. Um, and I needed to pay the bills. 
uh, I was able to write more of my own stuff. Um, and yes, the anxiety and the stress may have prevented me from writing humor for a little bit, but I was able to, once things just started settling into a routine and not that so much that it got a lot better, but it got, I, I became a little bit more used and a little bit kind of more build a harder shell around myself, I would say, uh, you know, once I was able to kind of interact with, uh, with what's going on, especially being in New York, my zip code at one point had the highest percentage of cases in the world, at least from the places that reported their numbers. So, uh, so it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was really challenging for a while, but uh, ultimately I think it resulted in more words being written. Yeah. yeah, I had all sorts of um, reactions. I had a lot of people, a lot of writers say they were shut down. They were unable to write because they were, you know, stressed or, or just um, didn't have the creativity during a lot of the stress and others that were like yourself able to just uh, do it. No problem. They, the, they liked being alone in that. And do, do you ever come across a writer's block for yourself or a time where you just can't write? Absolutely. Uh, and I, I, I'm in a very privileged position of not having to rely on my writing for income. So at the end of the day, if I don't feel like writing, I don't have to write. But I also, as I said earlier, uh, I think it's important that if you're writing uh, at a professional level, you need to find ways of working around writer's block. And uh, very early on, I found out that it usually writer's block means that your brain is not quite ready to move forward with a specific project because it's mulling something over in the background you know there's a background process just like in your computer that's just sort of taking up all of your memory and you can't do it so my solution to that is just to have several things that i'm working on at one level or another and when i encounter that uh you know that that, that, that roadblock i just sit down and i work on something else well interesting conversation and uh i'm glad you came along now the book um we're talking about uh, that's just coming out is the middling affliction and it's the uh, conrad verse chronicles book one our guest is the author of that alex schwartzman thank you for being here thank you very much for having me i appreciate it tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service go to our website and look for the martino movie reviews you've been listening to the house of mystery radio show to find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.